Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hark, you all. <laughs> and Lou. Hey, guys. A joke within the first 10 seconds of the show. You can't get that anywhere else. We should have replaced the theme with uh, trumpets this time around. (laughs) And and the fun part is people don't even get that joke yet. It's a reference to the subject of today's show. We're going to be talking about an idea called um, neo-feudalism. Now, this will be the first time we've ever used the term on Punching Out. Uh, We definitely have not made mention of it in previous episodes. Noah specifically has no thoughts on the matter. This is uh, all new to him. So you'll be learning about this alongside him today. Oh, that's wonderful for once I get to be the learner. (laughs) Wow, that's one minute. Well done. But no, seriously, this has been something that uh, Noah has talked about on past episodes and that it's fair to say that you were the spark behind this topic being uh, something we're discussing at full length today. So perhaps it's best to let you explain what is neo-feudalism? Uh, uh, ten yeah. words or less. Oh, ooh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Go, go at length here. No, it's fine. I, I was going to crack the joke that I was the person who like threw the sword down in the middle of the round table here. Except <laughs> I guess it's an iPad on a conference room kind of thing. But at any rate, neo-feudalism is sort of the collection of, like, some of it is policy, some of it is law, some of it is is ideology or culture. But it's, it's this moment in which somehow we are getting closer and closer to a society in which a class of lords is, you know, uh, uh, rather than profiting off of what they make is just deriving rent from the rest of us and being served by us and that that is the only way we can exist that we we do not exist by sort of providing our labor to then generate profit for people who then take that capital and reinvest it into their manufacturing enterprise or or what have you but that we work as a service class for a smaller and smaller number of enriched people who then turn around and demand more and more from us in in payment for housing in payment for for employment for education for everything i i think one of the things we talked about when originally floating this idea is um the idea that you don't own anything anymore that what you used to be able to buy as distinct products are have been turned into services have been turned into streaming services subscriptions instead of buying the dvd box set of say fraser you now need to it was going to be fraser <laughs> uh subscribe to p 
Peacock or whatever streaming service happens to have Frasier. And also, Frasier will get rebooted into Eternity because the people who are benefiting from the neo-feudalist economy love Frasier and think he is unironically a very smart and charming person. But more more realistically, it's also because it can renew the copyright on it and gives a whole new set of people a whole new, like, way to lease this and, and like, claim ownership over something that they then will lease out to other people. So, so like, yes, joke, but also not really. Form of yeah. new feudalism. I, I think, actually, the, I, I hate to say this, but my other degree is in medieval history, and I feel like the original feudalism had a much more progressive view of intellectual property than the current regime does. So actually, I think we've kind of worse in that regard. <laughs> I just, I'm imagining Frasier and like, t- like hose and a doublet. Well, that was definitely a plot of an episode. They, him and Niles went to a red fair. Absolutely. There was a jousting incident. about the size of their cod pieces for about five minutes. <laughs> they really did. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Okay, anyway, focus. So when we talk about neo-feudalism, we also then have to bring up regular feudalism and the ways in which that was distinct from the capitalism that we now find ourselves under, that you know, it's generally understood that we've been living under a regime that can be called capitalism. And that's distinct from what came before it. You know, you'll get into Sometimes people who think capitalism has always been there, it has always been just the ability to trade goods and services or what have you. But no, it hasn't always, like, we haven't always governed our society by the rules of capitalism. We haven't always had, you know, this market-based approach to things, this world in which the ownership of property gives you the ability to wield power and wealth that's actually distinct from what came before feudalism then what was that what was that all about well first you have to take issue with the fact that there wasn't a feudalism that's the very first problem feudalism takes a million different forms in a million different places because it's what happens when the roman empire falls apart and everybody kind of has to figure out what to do now and i know that all the men in the audience who were all already thinking about the Roman Empire, are very happy that we're bringing it up on Punching Out officially. It's long been the uh, subtext behind our episodes, now <laughs> made text. Exactly. Finally. But as the Empire falls apart and its complex administration and all of that uh, gets localized, you end up with all sorts of different relationships. But the things that they have in common are... I guess, limited by, well, technology that's available. It's sort of urbanization in different areas, like how prominent cities were and that kind of thing. And essentially, like, local concerns, which is how all of these are going to split apart. But they do have some elements in common, which is that, generally speaking, your your primary forms of, of making money and having power are um, not just ownership of land, but ownership of things like water mills and so on. And 
having a monopoly on on the use of force within your territory, which would eventually be usurped by states that you had through private armies and, and that sort of thing. And lastly, the, the other thing is that you're mainly making your money through rent. Your peasants, your serfs or free peasants or what have you, whatever kind of lord you are, they owe money to you and they pay you for the use of all sorts of different things. They are required to use your facilities to do certain things. They're required to buy in towns that you own and so on. So there's this very simple system of obligations for lords towards peasants. And then within the ranks of the nobility, there's an immensely complex system of all sorts of different things to ensure that certain people have the right to stab other people. At the risk of oversimplifying things, I think in feudalism, you also have a sense of the way this system justifies itself is that it argues that this is the natural order of things. Certain people are born to be lords or kings or what have you, and others, they are born to this other class. They are of lower status by default. There's not much you can do to change these things. These are innate qualities. And the world is the way it is because it always has been and always will be. And in the shift to capitalism that you see in the 1600s and onward, you get more of a meritocratic argument about why hierarchies emerge. You know, if somebody ends up being your boss, that is because he staked out enough money and capital to you know, take the risks, so to speak, to earn his position above you in your workplace. And if you save up enough money, you too can become him. There is the promise of like some sort of class mobility that wasn't there previously. And that's the argument that capitalism uses to justify itself. You know, it is simply people's success is a product of their own hard work and effort. And that's where we are today. Unless we've moved on to something else. One of the articles that we're going to be talking a lot about on today's show, I think, comes from Jody Dean in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It was written in May of 2020. Headline, Neo-Feudalism, the End of Capitalism. And one of the arguments made in this, uh, what is a pretty long article, is the idea that, well, what if capitalism already has ended? What if something has already supplanted it? What if we have witnessed changes to the economic system that governs our lives to the point where it's not the same system anymore? It is something new. It is neo-feudalism is the term she uses. And that's... I mean, that's a big question, right? Those are like, those throw into tremendous doubt a lot of the things we assume to be true. But then what, what's the evidence on which she is making this claim that things have already changed? What are the changes we've seen? Yes, I really first really love that article because it's a a good overview of kind of the academic and arguments you know, in what she refers to as a post-capitalist society or world, which she argues pretty convincingly, I think that that we are there. And and the point, the evidence she points to is the fact that 
one money and the, the, the big industries in today's world aren't really industries. So they're not like growing things. They're not making things. They're rent seeking, they're financial. So they're, as, as Noah said, um, you know, the fundamental difference is now, whereas under like pure capitalism, as you can say it, um, you know, you had to make something in order to make money. And now all you have to do is lease something out in order to make your money. And we can see that in, in the fact that literally everything now is a, a rent. Like I remember when you could buy Microsoft Office on a disc and load it onto your computer. And then that's what you had forever. And that went away probably 10, 15 years ago now, maybe like 12 um, right around the time when I started college, where you had to start paying a subscription every year. That was how you got, that's now how you get Microsoft. And that wasn't always the case. There's the the rise of the gig economy too, she points to as, you know, you're, you're, we're not, the, the p- developers of Uber and Airbnb, they're not producing anything. They're renting out their, whatever their website to you to then pay them if that makes sense at all so that's one thing like our economy now has shifted towards renting uh second like the way that people earn their living is through service work now there's a lot fewer people working in factories there's a lot fewer people working on farms almost everybody in the economy now is doing some kind of service work whether that's working directly with people or working behind the scenes is like cleaning folks or or whatever like that like we aren't building anything anymore we're serving the people who own us so those two points like in particular are really strong evidence that we are shifting backwards i'd say into more of a feudalist lifestyle I want to quote a bit from the article just to give some specifics here as to, you know, what's being talked about. She talks about, um, well, to quote from the article, unlike the watermill, peasants had no choice but to use. Platforms not only position themselves so that their use is basically necessary, like banks, credit cards, phones, and roads, but that their use generates data for their owners. Users not only pay for the service, but the platform collects the data generated by the use of the service. The cloud platform extracts rents and data like land squared. The most extreme examples are Uber and Airbnb, which extract rent without property by relying on an outsourced workforce responsible for its own maintenance, training, and means of work. One's car isn't for personal transport, it's for making money. Once apartment isn't a place to live, it's something to rent out. Items of consumption are reconfigured as means of com- accumulation as personal property becomes an instrument for the capital and data accumulation of the lords of the platform, Uber and Airbnb. This tendency becomes becoming peasant, that is, to becoming one who owns means of production but whose labor increases the capital of the platform owner, is neo-feudal. Yeah, it is. There's there's not much else to say in that. One of the things that we've seen, so Ryan, you brought up the idea that it's a natural order, the the justification of feudalism. And I mean, we've seen a return of that over the past 15 years that uh, not only have we seen open pining 
for feudalism and you know eugenics and and all that sort of thing from the absolute just dumbest people on the planet but we've also seen while we're at it increasing amounts of uh or or increasing acceptance of the idea that some people are just innately smarter and better than the rest of us and somehow they always seem to be the people who also already have all of the money so that they can pay other people to do that you know some of this stuff it it's it, it was jokes like when peter Thiel said he wanted to get his uh his blood changed out uh or or replaced with the blood of young people so he could live forever and then you think about the fact that there are medieval there, there's at least one medieval noble who literally was famous for doing that these legends are coming true in our time again and they are up being allowed to come true because as a people we are dispossessed disenfranchised and miseducated into not realizing where these tropes come from like i'm not gonna say that you know i had an excellent education in medieval history when i was in high school or anything but we are actively discouraged from thinking of our country and of the current global economy as one where this is what's happening, except when some right-wing populist wants us to direct our ire at elites who are always somehow like trans people and, you know, uh, I don't know, like uh, college students with funny hair colors. Sure. Uh, or who tell you that you're uh, anybody who tells you that you can't say a racial slur? That that's really the elites, the actual people who are uh, conglomerating all the power and money underneath themselves. Somehow that, that never counts. And the weird part about it, right, is that under feudalism, at least you didn't have this constant barrage of information coming at you from every corner of the world. Because I don't know if y'all know this, but ye old Twitter did not exist in 1066. Um, that would have been a very different time if uh, the, the Battle of Hastings would have gone very differently with social media. There's an alternate version of this episode where we spend the next 40 minutes making riffs on medieval Twitter, but um, we'll spare you. I, I think that joke, ironically, has been played out so hard, it might as well be medieval right now. But, but we can see how stupid Elon Musk is. By any real definition of the word, he is a lord like all of those companies that he has found that none of them actually make anything uh except for you know recallable cars that light themselves on fire and can't uh supposedly unbreakable windows that can't take a a, a ball impact and rockets that can't actually stay in the air and come back safely like these are not successful products but he is allowed to continue making them simply because in in any in any just meritocratic system the SEC would currently be having a field day with him. Every agency in the government would currently be in his colon. But we live in a world that has decided that he is innately better than the rest of us because he has money. So even though we see his idiocy on display every single day, none of that matters because we live in a society that's decided he's part of the aristocracy. It's fine that he's an idiot. No one cares. He is a modern-day, you know, Habsburg, but it doesn't matter. Not that the Habsburgs themselves have been doing much better for themselves on, on social media, but, you know, that's another story. 
I, th- I think another aspect of this new um, era, if it is a new era, is the idea that, you know, under capitalism, corporations and the wealthy writ large required the existence of a state in order to protect their property rights, to ensure that things effectively played by their rules. And what we're seeing now is corporations, especially in the tech sector like Google and Amazon, that are to some degree their own states, that they are bigger than any single government could be, can be, uh, because they are entrenched in all corners of the globe. And this changes the power balance that once existed. Yeah, because it's no longer that you know, corporations rely on capital to protect them. It's now like, or cannot capital states to protect them. It's now that states are actively courting these corporations. Like the power balance is completely flipped. It goes back to an older era in which, you know, kings still had to deal with the lords of whatever region, um, you know, you had dukes and, duchesses and you know whoever ruled over this particular fiefdom had some say that the king you know high on his throne did not and we're starting to see a re-emergence of that there's a american prospect article on the head with the headline rise of neo-feudalism that goes into the ways in which increasingly corporations have put into place arbitration regimes where if you want to make a complaint or to get damages out of a company that has harmed you in some way, you have to go through the arbitration system that they've designed. You have to go through what are effectively their courts rather than an ostensibly neutral court of law run by the government. And friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Obviously, is going to be the reference we make here. Yes, thank you, thank you. I didn't want to let the man who saved the poor, downtrodden arbitration regimes go unnamed. I mean, once you've gotten to the point where there's private law, right? Like once you've gotten to the point that corporations can essentially invent their own legal regimes, you no longer have a capitalist society. The whole point of capitalism is supposed to be supposed, I'm big 72 point air quotes here, but ostensibly there are these nation states, they monopolize the use of force and and they use that force to protect property rights, you know, at, at both the individual and corporate level. And we're all supposed to operate in the idealized version of this by the same set of rules that are not supposed to be Particularly, I mean, they're they're supposed to favor capital, obviously. That's why it's capitalism and not laborism. But they're ultimately not supposed to outright hand power over to capital. And capital is not supposed to exist separate from the state. Right. I I, I think something that gets lost in, you know, the idea of capital creating the state to protect its interests is eventually the state requires at least some semblance of democratic legitimacy because capital is still outnumbered, even if it has the resources and power. 
what happened in France is not something they want to happen again. It, the French Revolution. Capital needs the state to exist to protect its interests, and it needs that state to have some sort of legitimacy and authority because otherwise it can't do its job. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing now is that the Bezos and Musks and alphabets of the world ha- are, are beginning to realize that you really only need the state to sort of step in and point guns at the people you don't like. There is literal and, and occasionally, increasingly rarely, you know, like build roads to your campuses and stuff like that. That was sort of the the main alliance between these multinational corporations and the states that they did business in for a long time was that the countries did the public works and sort of organized the people and kept the data on them. But now you don't even need that. Google could run the census in, you know, up to date. If, if you really, dear God, why am I doing this? I'm giving them ideas. But if you wanted to have an up to the date census with reapportionment built in and everything, that's something an algorithm can do like that. But Google is not interested in doing that because Google is not interested in being an arbiter of democracy that removes Alphabet's ability to do certain things, that opens it up to the responsibilities of a state. And what these corporations want is all the power of a government without all of the obligations of a government. I'm going to quote a bit from uh, this American Prospect article. Outsourcing of public functions, which gained ground beginning in the 1980s, brought with it outsourcing of jurisprudence. Private prisons turn a quintessentially public function, incarceration for criminal actions, into a profit-making venture with minimal public accountability. In private, quote, voucher schools, financed by public funds, a private entity makes the rules. Gated residential communities, such as Disney's Celebration, are privately controlled municipalities that make and enforce their own laws. Private mercenary armies, such as Blackwater, now rebranded as Academy with an I, hate that, are hired Mm -hmm. by the Pentagon so that their, quote, soldiers will be less accountable for what might otherwise be war crimes. Eminent domain, the inherent public prerogative to claim private property for a public purpose, has been commandeered by private developers. You know, on down the line, all of these aspects of society have seen a shift in who is responsible for them, from the ostensibly democratic state to private, unaccountable corporations. And that's not good. Yeah, it's it's just another illustration of that. Like the the whole appeal of capitalism, well, not the whole appeal, but the the selling point to the masses for capitalism is that it is two equal people in a contract entering contract freely. So I sell my labor to you, and you give me money in return. That is no longer the case, and everybody's fully okay in admitting that, and that there is a huge power imbalance and nobody is entering any kind of contract as equal partners in, in this. Um, like I, I can't use any service out there and say, actually, I don't like your terms of service. Let me edit that. Nobody can ever do that ever. You have to click. Oh, I agree. And they own, you know, your liver or whatever they want to take from you at that point. 
There's no and choice. Yet you participate in society. So, <laughs> yeah, because I'm definitely doing that willingly. And it's pretty open now that that's the case. And at least for a while in capitalism, like there was a myth going on that, that you know, we're all equal in this together and that we have all equal protection of the, under the law. And that's completely out the window now. To um, take a bit of a tangent here, something that came up in our original discussion of you know, doing this episode is um, how after the show Downton Abbey became popular, there was a sort of resurgence in popularity for hiring butlers, um, which is thought of as this outdated idea, Normal. but it's now like back. The butlers are back. The butlers back in town. <laughs> the butlers yeah. did do it. Well, it, and I don't remember which one of you said this earlier, but it, there's a resurgence in in going back to the way things used to be. This is the Downton Abbey thing is like my hobby horse, a hundred percent. I'm kind of mildly obsessed with that show. Started watching not it. What I might be unleashing here. <laughs> yeah, no one's Sorry. making you do this, Lou. No, no, I've got to do it. I got to do it. I got to let my free flag fly. Downton Abbey, like, I started watching it as a, ooh, this is a crazy drama with pretty costumes. This is very cool. But the more I've watched it, and I've watched the show a lot, the more I just, I'm fascinated with the mindset of the person who created the show. So this guy, Julian Fellows, who is a peer in um, Britain right now, which means he's a lord, and he sits in the House of Lords, and he has power over other people. And the whole point behind his show is to create this, like, backing of his ideology and his worldview which is that feudalism is good that's the whole point of this show is that feudalism is good that the lord exists to care for everyone around him that he is a, a patriarchal figure that yes he does own all the power yes he gets to live in a big fancy house but he has this obligation to help other people uh and and not just other people the like low people who work for him and his servants and even the servants are all like oh my gosh i can't believe i get to work for this lord who's so kind and good and benevolent and i love him so much like that's the whole point of downton abbey is to not just idol idealize this worldview and this this way of thinking that is we all agree extraordinarily antiquated but to make it more popular so that we can do it all over again just to put some statistics to this Butler discussion, this is from a uh, NPR article in 2014, which uh, cites Downton Abbey as serving up a demand for butlers. Serving up. I see what they did there. Yeah. yeah. 35 years ago, David Katz writes, there were only a few hundred butlers left in Britain. Today, there are roughly 10,000, plus thousands more abroad. Uh, he tells NPR's Aaron Roth, that these days most of the demand is coming from wealthy individuals in emerging markets, from Russian oligarchs to billionaires in Dubai to rich Chinese. Some of these individuals may already have housekeepers or servants at home, but the desire for a butler goes beyond that. Yeah, that's. I, I'm reminded because a lot of things remind me of this of the David Graeber book BS Jobs, in which. Um, one of his theories for why so many jobs have emerged that seem to have no 
proper use or function is that managers have a bit of the feudal lord in them. They like having titles. They like having a number of people under them who can be counted and shown off to their fellow lords. You know, so when the manager becomes the new regional supervisor, that is our modern neo-feudal equivalent to a duke becoming a count or the other way around if those titles are in a different order than I had thought. You can tell who on this show has played Crusader Kings 3 and who has not. (laughs) Anyway, somebody want to take this away from me? Well, I was going to say, I think my favorite part of that article you just talked about was when in the class, the person says, what happens if you're about to serve this big dinner party and you get a call saying that your wife or child is sick and a bunch of the people in the class go, well, wouldn't you make arrangements and they have somebody cover for you? And I'm like, what class do you think you're in? Do you think you're in a be a human person class? You're in a class to become a butler. Like I knew that answer. And of course, the answer is your employer should never even know that that's the case. Like, it, it, they I think the line was their concerns are not your concerns. What class do you think it is? Was also a rejected title for this show. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, Lou, I have a bone to pick with your your. Of course you do. Of course well, yeah. you do. But you specifically said, we all think this mode of thinking, the, the feudalistic mode of thinking depicted in multiple award-winning show Downton Abbey, is antiquated. But I actually think, if you're looking at the way that our current nobility and aristocracy thinks about the world and talks about the rest of us, the only part of it that, that's antiquated is the part where the Lord has to take care of other people. Right now, the mode of thinking is the Lord sits in their castle in their big fancy houses in seven different places and does nothing. And all of the people that they own can shift for themselves. They can figure it out, which is actually a lot closer to what a Lord actually was in medieval times. And I think one of the weirder sort of things about about this whole neo-feudalism discussion, other than it always brings up the image of like knights, but with Gundams. But that's, that's again, a separate story, is that we know when we talk about medieval times, right? This has swung. Pause. Mm-hmm. Every time you say medieval times, I'm like, didn't they, they unionize? Yeah. They did. They did unionize. And it's called the Guild, which is so appropriate. So funny. It's very <laughs> okay. good. So we're but, not talking about the union. We're talking no. about the bad ones. When we talk about those ages, it has swung all the way from thinking that those were wonderful times of Camelot and King Arthur to that there could be no joy or or good things that ever came out of those places. And now we know, of course, that the truth is more nuanced. We always knew that, but it, it it's becoming more true. We understand that more now as a cultural truth. But ironically, I think it those poles of opinion on it keep us from realizing that that is happening right now because we want to think that we're better than medieval peasants. We want to think that we're better than, you know, some random merchant in like 1150s uh, Leipzig or whatever, uh, trying to make a living by not annoying the Holy Roman Empire's local administrator or whatever. 
we we want to think that we have moved beyond that. And I think weirdly enough, you know, it's it's corny, it's it's cliche, but we are repeating our history in a lot of ways. We are backsliding. We acknowledge it in certain respects, but I think ideologically that is also happening at the bedrock of our society. And we don't really want to talk about it because we don't really want to think of ourselves as, you know, no better than the people that were subject to the depredations of, I don't know, the the, the Duke of Rennes or whatever. Another old trend that has come back into style, so to speak, is uh, the company town. Um, there's an article in, again, the American Prospect, this time by Sean Richmond in March of 2018, uh, with the headline, Company Towns Are Still With Us. Now, company towns properly, not a feudal thing. They are a capitalist development, the primarily, you know, in what we now call the Gilded Age, the late 1800s, early 1900s. But this article goes into some of that history of towns like uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, not a coincidence that it's named after the company that calls it home, and Pullman, Illinois, which um, was started by Pullman of the Pullman um, Railroad Company, gets into the ways in which these things came about and the ways in which they ended. You know, they we no longer have company script unionization took place in the 30s and in the decades preceding that really made it impossible for companies to govern every aspect of their employees' lives in the way that they did. But now in this new era, in this bright, shining 21st century, some of our company leaders, some of our CEOs are seeing the wisdom of company towns again. You're seeing it with the um, the tech campuses, the the ways in which Google has ping pong tables so their workers can be there at the office, you know, much more than a reasonable working day. It's the idea that everything in your life should revolve around what you do for work rather than the other way around. Yeah, and that article also talked about the fact that the modern equivalent of this is the everybody in a town in the South working for Nissan. And the fact that because they have such overpowered influence in uh, the economy of, of these very rural locations, usually, they can do whatever they want and they can avoid unionization because they could just say, well, we can move to another small town. You're not special. So they, they end up having the same kind of effect of, of dominating a workforce in a, a locality because of that. The only difference is they may not own all the land and, and make you pay rent on, on your house like they did in Pullman and Hershey. But the effect is the same. And the, the impact, I guess, ultimately the impact that these companies have on your life is beyond the scope that you would expect from just capitalism. Like under, you know, Marxist capitalism, um, you have to do social reproduction in order to uh, refuel yourself for your working life. But now like 
the degree to which companies have infiltrated that social reproduction time is overpowered, I would argue. We do have a, another segment planned for today's show that we'll get into some um, recent news. But I think at this point, it's worth asking the question of why have we spent 40 minutes or so here talking about neo-feudalism? If you're listening to Punching Out, I, something at least in my mind we strive to do is to place all our discussions in concrete terms. You know, this is something that is happening to workers who are just like you. This is something that is happening in workplaces that might be happening in your workplace. So why have we spent two thirds of a show today talking about an ism, something that is, you know, a theory, an idea, something that may seem much more vague to listeners. I think Jody Dean gets at this in two different ways in her article. One of which is that, you know, it was a, a dominant thought for 20th century communists that when capitalism finally ended, that the post-capitalist era would by necessity be a communist era, that if you laid the groundwork, then that was the natural progression. But there is actually no guarantee that that is the case. As Ryan, as you put it off air before we started recording, those of us who want that to be the future may be finding that we're being beaten to the punch by a number of people who want to concentrate power and resources in very, very few hands. And on the other side, I think, and, and this one for me is, is especially dangerous, is that I think Jody Dean has a good point that a lot of ideas that seem good and, and lefty and wonderful at first blush, I think you have to be really careful with not because the intention is bad, but because I think they can, they accept our increasing slide into a new feudalistic society and basically try to roll with that punch instead of trying to envision something different. This is something that is also a hobby horse of mine. We tend to just kind of try to improve things around the margins, basically, instead of trying to envision what does a new how do we break from the assumptions of the society that we have right now and build one up from scratch instead of just, you know, making capitalism nicer or making, you know, social democracy, but with more hammers and sickles everywhere, everywhere. And I think that's, that's an important thought process because I think the, the Peter Steele and Elon Musk of the world in their own stupid ways are thinking about this and they have the money and the power to make their visions real. We'll take a break here. Uh, when we come back, we will uh, discuss not neo-feudalism, but, um, well, I mean, maybe it all is neo-feudalism anymore, but we will discuss uh, some labor news from the past couple of weeks and we'll end this show on a note. I, I used to say we would end the show on a positive note, but that's not guaranteed anymore. You know, we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still Hark, you all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Sorry. We spent the first two-thirds of today's show talking about neo-feudalism, and we kind of figured that was enough talk about neo-feudalism for one day. We're going to finish this episode with some odds and ends from around the labor world. Starting off with the news from couple weeks ago now that the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, their strike against the uh, assorted mountain of toilet paper. Assorted mountain. <laughs> That's even better than mine. The, it was a, a mountainous pile of toilet paper. Yeah. The movie and television producers, that strike is over. And from the reports and a lot of the discussion I've seen of the agreement that writers were able to achieve, it sounds like they won this strike. They, against all of the people who you know predicted that studios would just replace them with ChatGPT, turns out that must not have been very easy to do because the studios really buckled to a lot of what writers were asking for, uh, including some restrictions on how AI, how artificial writing programs can be used in order to produce scripts. Um, In this case, not really. Uh, It's not something that's going to be source material under the current agreement. It's something that writers can choose to use, but studios can't make them do so. And from what we've seen of ChatGPT's output, why would writers choose to use it? But it's another matter. Do we have thoughts on all of this? Aside from the obvious of, hell yeah. Yeah, pretty much hell yeah. Because it it was a pretty decisive victory in that a lot of the the big talking points that writers were concerned about, so AI, um, writer's room, the, the... you're paid for weeks worked, not, you know, day, day rates or anything like that. All of these were, were by and large one, uh, along with a few bonuses. They got additional, there's money set aside now to train writers to be showrunners now. So, so there's like the return of upward mobility for, for writers in Hollywood, which is really cool. The other point on, residuals so they now have performance-based residuals where the studios and streaming platforms have to pay writers if people are watching their show because it's very clear that studios were being deliberately opaque about how many people were watching their shows so that they could not pay people what what they should have been paid and that was a concession that was won as well like Across the board, like I don't feel like the studios won much of anything uh, in terms of what they wanted to win was the absolute subjugation of of writers everywhere uh, and just grind them down to bones. And that didn't happen. So I'd say uh, it was a win for writers for sure. Yeah, the, the WGA was clear that this was something. All of these were things where they were told to their faces across the negotiating table the mountainous pile of toilet paper said, we will not give you these things. We simply will not. And we talked on this show about why they kind of had to hold strong and and, uh, why the AMPTP even exists in the first place. And as it turned out, as we all knew, 
there's so much money in this industry that they could absolutely afford to do all of this. And eventually they buckled. Um, great for the writers. Here's hoping that this also gives them the resources and the power to be able to withstand whatever BS uh, Bob Iger and David Saslov come up with next. Because they are, they're definitely not going to be done, but at least now we showed that they're, sorry, the writers, because I didn't do anything for this, uh, showed that these men are mortal. There's an article in Vulture on you know just how the WGA was able to get a victory this time when they didn't during the last major writer strike of 2007. And one of the factors they cite is actually social media here. Twitter is much more of a force than it was in 2007. And it is nothing if not a haven for television writers and people aspiring to be television writers. Quoting from this article, Social media served as a daily antidote against flagging morale and a tool to fight back against attempts by the studios to spin the narrative of the strike via media leaks. When stories about showrunners pushing WGA leadership on the status of strike talks started to surface, writers writers flooded Twitter to tamp down suggestions that these conversations were signs of weakening solidarity. The moment anything like that came out, we had a way of communicating our side. WGA writer says the power of social media to shame dissenters also likely convinced any wavering showrunners to keep disagreements largely to themselves. Some showrunners got away with undercutting their own guild in 2008 in a way that would not be allowed today. The veteran showrunner says, quote, I mean, they beat the crap out of Drew Barrymore. Barrymore had talked about uh, bringing her talk show back during the strike and was um, quickly roundly just mocked and criticized for that and days later the strike was over Um, there was some talk that i'd seen of how between barrymore and uh, bill maher and the reaction that the returns of their shows got studios saw maybe the writing on the wall so to speak for their pr efforts in this strike they wouldn't just be able to bring back these shows without writers yeah you you might say they uh flipped the script <laughs> the worst uh and i will say like my prediction at the beginning of the strike i i will eat my words i said that people would get to the point where they want their treats back where the moment we started having movies delayed that they'd like dune was pushed back i think four or five months something like that that people would start turning on the writers and that never happened like by and large Granted, I'm a leftist. I'm only looking at certain categories of media, to be fair. Um, But it didn't, I never got the sense that people were tired of the strike, that they needed people to go back so that they could have their treats again. Like, I got the sense that people, not writers, but just us everyday folks, were still supportive of the strike, even as it went into day. 140 or whatever which was really cool that was pretty awesome solidarity works it's amazing what it can do the writer's strike is over but the screen actors guild uh, and american federation of television and radio actors their strike continues against the movie industry so it may be some time before uh, scripted dramas and shows and movies are back in order 
the actors still have issues that need to be worked out in their own contract bargaining talks. Speaking of SAG-AFTRA, they may have another strike uh, on their hands um, after a vote authorizing a strike against the video game industry. The Some voice actors who work on video games are covered by SAG-AFTRA and SAG-AFTRA contracts, and that union is looking to strike uh, for the sorts of reasons you might expect, you know, better pay, better residuals um, for their work, which very cool. Yes. It's uh, we've talked before about work within the video game industry. I think voice actors might be one of the only categories of video game labor that we haven't really discussed. Um, We've, we've certainly talked about, you know, but uh, it's great for them to have that link into uh, a more traditional union, I guess is the word I'm looking for, because we've talked about how much of the problem with unionizing the games industry is that um, gamers exist, and they are not, in fact, the most oppressed group in America. They are, in fact, whiny little babies who complain anytime things don't go their way. Um, But the voice actors can at least, they have the backing of SAG-AFTRA, so they've got a traditional union structure that doesn't really care what gamers want which is great. No one should. Um, so all power to them. Hope they win everything they want and more because game voice acting, I, I know several people who've done it or want to do it or, and, and it, it does not pay. It is not great. Uh, especially not once we started replacing, once we did the same thing that happened with animated movies and we decided to make it uh, a celebrity job that, you know, somebody could walk in and, and just do that. And that would be an attractor for a video game. Once that happened, um, a lot of voice actors, like it, it became an even less stable gig. The movie and TV industry concentrated in California. A lot of video game studios are located in California and it, seems fair that we should end this discussion by talking about the governor of California, uh, Gavin Newsom, who on our last episode, you might recall, we talked about how the California Senate had passed a bill that would allow striking workers, workers on strike from their companies or workers being locked out by their companies to access unemployment benefits, which would, in addition to whatever strike fund the union may have, would provide them with money during uh, what could be long months of a strike. The writer's strike lasted about close to four months. The actor strike still ongoing. Uh, any number of strikes, you know, it doesn't have to be just this industry, but Gavin Newsom, governor of California, he vetoed this bill, uh, citing concerns about what it would mean for the uh, debt laden unemployment insurance program in California um, and perhaps privately citing concerns about what it would mean for his future presidential hopes. I was I was going to say, I, I wasn't sure about this, but I heard somewhere that his final words were, actually, I don't want to be president because there is absolutely no way in hell that a Democratic 2024 or 2028 presidential nominee is going to win without organized labor supporting them, and you do not get to veto this bill and expect that support. SAG-AFTRA has already been very clear that they're going to remember this. And again, one of the benefits of SAG-AFTRA striking is that you cannot ask for a more public union. 
you cannot ask other than maybe the major uh, uh, the major sports leagues. But those are our two cultural products. Those are the only two things that America makes in any density that we all recognize and consume. Sports and movies, shows, whatever. So the fact that some of our most... Um, I cannot come up with this. Uh, celebrated. celebrated and public-facing labor organizers, right, are going to remember this. I think Gavin Newsom just sank his hopes for that, which honestly, it's, it, if that's all you get punished for, that's not much. But here's hoping that, you know, everybody gives him hell for this until let me not get us in trouble. And I guess lastly, proving that Gavin Newsom is a land of contrast. He did sign into law a bill that would give a $20 an hour minimum wage to fast food workers this past week. Hard in my mind to square the circle of passing the one and vetoing the other, but um, Gavin Newsom, a land of contrasts. Uh, $20 an hour. That's uh, pretty good. That's pretty cool. Yeah, good start. I, I think that's the note that we'll end this week's episode on just out of a concern for time here for this week i'm ryan i'm lou i was noah this was watching out you've been listening to punching out you can find us on facebook and on twitter at punching out Leo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.